Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at seachangehappen.co.uk. That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 69, with the title D-E-N-I is the mother of all win-wins. I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Kate Trafford. Kate describes herself as a master coach, author, and TEDx speaker on the subject of authentic success. She supports individuals on their journey of self-discovery so they can become all that they have the potential to be. When I asked Kate to describe her superpower, she said, it's seeing the brilliance in others and reflecting it back, helping people to recognise their own uniqueness and to see its value in the world. Hello, Kate. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. Thank you so much for inviting me along. Absolute pleasure. I mean, it's, I'd like to say it's been a long time since we've spoken, but we were spent a weekend, a, long, a very long weekend in Dublin recently for a speaker's conference, didn't we? And that was... We did, we, the Global was, Speaker Summit. Mm, and we've both yeah. come back with a bit of a... A not COVID type COVID. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's been an interesting few weeks, but you've got a little button. You've just told me you've got a little cough button, which is very clever. I might need to get myself one of those for the future. They're very useful. They are very useful. So Kate, tell me, what do you mean by D-E-N-I is the mother of all win-wins? Well, I think that... Um, D&I as a subject is often positioned in business as this extra thing we have to think about that, quite honestly, we'd rather not have to think about. Right up there with health and safety and everything else. We know it's a good thing. We know it matters. We know it's important. But it's often framed as being a cost on our time, our energy, our finances, and so on. And I just do not see it that way at all. I think that... The most successful teams uh, are always diverse teams. They're always teams that draw in as many perspectives as possible and help to create an environment where people can be themselves and can bring the best of themselves to the business. So when you create that kind of safe space where people can show up as who they really are, even if that's not the norm, if that's not the mainstream or the majority, then you create the conditions under which that optimal performance can actually happen. So it's a win for the individuals and it's a win for the team and the business themselves. It is genuinely the mother of all win-wins. I can yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with that because I I talk about this, uh, as you know, that that's my chosen subject. If, if mm. I sat in the black chair, a mastermind, I would be talking about exactly this. Mm. So I'm I'm not at all going to argue with what your perspective is on that. And I think it's fantastic. And to give this uh, today some context, um, Vishy Sunak became our new prime minister this morning. Okay. Uh, he met King Charles, and uh, we now have a new leader, our first leader of Indian. 
Asian descent. And yes. I, I see many people on LinkedIn and other platforms talking about how it's amazing that we have someone from an underrepresented, marginalized, non-white British background now as our leader. That is diversity, isn't it? I absolutely is. And I think the the additional value that comes from a perspective like that is that often individuals like Rishi Sunak and the, you know, many other sort of criteria that we could speak to here, Joanne, but um, often have had to develop the ability to see the world through multiple lenses, right? So, um, so his British Asian heritage, there's one interface, there's one boundary, there's one um, sort of, if you like, uh, sort of um, parallel cultures, if you like, that he's no doubt been navigating in his entire lives. And I think his, when you have that uh, need initially and subsequently ability to look at the world through multiple lenses. It makes you a, a more well-rounded thinker. And I, for one, really vote for well-rounded thinking in our leaders, whether that's in politics or in business. Yeah, here, here, I completely. But we, we can't fall into the trap of saying if someone looks different, they think different. Um, no. Let's trust our previous prime minister of 44 days filled her <laughs> leadership team full of optically different people and it didn't necessarily bring a cohesive um balanced team did it no and i think that is a trap that businesses can fall into as well i think we we recruit in our own likeness uh, as a well-established principle but what do we mean by likeness and and quite often it's ideology that drives that uh maybe even character traits rather than anything to do with uh protected characteristics for example like race or gender so i think what we end up with quite often at the top of organizations is um, a lack of diversity of thinking a diversity of perspectives and um and that is very very dangerous because almost by definition if uh, if everybody sitting around the leadership table is is looking in the same or a similar direction <laughs> it's behind you you know they're right behind you there's all of this stuff that nobody is paying attention to and the people wider in the organization can see it but the people at the top can't and so um and that drives of course the culture of the organization so quite often for example when i'm i'm coaching the i tend to coach the emerging leaders of an organization the people who are making that transition from their senior management role into their first big leadership role and one of the the areas of nervousness is quite often you know do i do i fit the molds do i belong around this table and in order to make that assessment what people are looking at is like am i like these people right does, does that, am i going to fit in and one of the things that i i always love to explore with them is why it is so important to not be <laughs> like the people around the table to find your own um your own authentic leadership style in order to contribute to fill the gaps to to fill any blind spots around the table and that of course uh, it does take courage it takes confidence to be able to do that but when you see yourself as the 
most introverted in a room full of extroverts or, you know, the lone female in a, a, a room full of male leaders or whatever that difference might be, is just to acknowledge that, that there are, there's already enough, by definition, there's already enough people in the majority. <laughs> so it doesn't really add any more value to join them there. And just to be willing to see it as even more important that you're around the table, not in spite of your difference, but because of it. Yeah, and I, that actually reminds me of a saying, isn't it? Where it's, it's uh, you hire me because I'm different, but then you fire me because I don't fit in. It's That's kind of right. that. It's this desire for difference, but because we focus so much on culture fit, you know, you need to fit the culture, the either the lad culture, the drinky culture, the boozy culture, the banter culture, um, and sometimes when you are coming from an underrepresented. Uh, background, you know, and I, I hate to say women are underrepresented because we're half of the uh, half of the species. Um, but often we are underrepresented in so many rooms, yeah. and navigating that to fit in and be accepted is a real challenge because we have to blend somehow, don't we? Sometimes. Well, we absolutely do, and and then there will also be times where that's not possible. So. You, you're reminding me, you're, you're sending me way back here, Joanne. My, my actual uh, start in my career was my original professional background was actually engineering, believe it or not. So my first degree was chemical engineering. I qualified as a chartered engineer. I was working in the, the nuclear industry at the time, actually. And, um, and I was the lone female in most of the rooms that I was in. Certainly, when I went on site, um, I was uh, there were there weren't, weren't even any women's toilets. There wasn't a, a, a woman a women's basic uniform for me to wear. Um, that's I'm going back a bit now. It's different now, but but that was true then. And at first, I found that really oh gosh, it was. Um, Oh, I can't even find the right word for for the intensity of the gaze. <laughs> um, that that it was a very strange experience as a, as a young woman in my first professional role. But then I realised that actually, um, what that did is it, it it meant that I I had people's attention by definition, right? Um, so I thought about that and I thought, okay, so I already have people's attention. What do I want to do with that? Now, I think there's a certain number of things that come with that. Like I held myself to very, very high standards, for example, because of that scrutiny. Um, and uh, I, <laughs> you know, real sort of striving for excellence, which has kind of stayed with me, I think, even from, from that early career. Um, and that's about meeting the norms that matter to you, right? So the fitting in element that you're alluding to, you know, meet the norms that matter. Um, but then where where you think you have a different perspective and you can bring something different, it's be, it's being willing to graciously challenge those norms. Okay, um, so you mentioned, you know, the booze culture, for example. I remember having a really interesting, rich conversation a few years ago with one of my clients who was um, a, a Muslim client who was uh, not part of the drinks after work culture and, and the way that almost everything that the organization wanted to celebrate or do any kind of team bonding or anything like that, it always revolved 
around alcohol and they felt very uncomfortable um, even sort of flagging that that wasn't appropriate for them but they actually became the the sort of the source of different opportunities and so on which then drove a more of a wellness perspective in the organization and so on so it does take courage to um to help to create an environment where you can go beyond fitting in and feel like you truly belong um so we all need to flex we all need to flex personality style etc um when we first arrive in a situation but if you want to stay then it's about doing what you need to do and can contribute not just for yourself but for the people like you and who will follow on from you to create that more inclusive culture where everybody has as you said in the introduction Joanne you know everybody has the chance to flourish and thrive Mm. yeah I like that because I think as human beings we have kind of like a a foundational responsibility of uh compliance to the rule set in whatever yes. in whatever team we're in either societal the laws the team dynamics if we're a i often refer to it as a, a gifted jerk the jerk overrides our gift doesn't it we become a person that is hard to be around disruptive for the team no longer a team player no matter how fantastic i am at my job it's always going to detract from me so it's, it's trying to find that way of of fitting into that foundational layer but putting our icing on the top of it and the sparkles and the sprinkly bits, that's our personality. We're doing, we're doing what's expected with our own personality, but recognising the dynamics of the environment we're in as well. Absolutely. And, you know, this is where um, I often, the way I think, think about this is I really like my life to be as drama-free as possible, right? And now if I, and I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners will feel <laughs> Anyway, um, who needs the drama, right? Um, but in order to have a, a, that kind of peace of mind, that that joyful journey, then it's like, okay, so I'm not going to contribute to the drama wherever possible. So if there is something that I need to challenge, I want to do that in a way that is respectful, that is that is inclusive of the mindset and perspective of whoever or the collective that I'm talking to and so on. Because um, it's much more likely then that you'll actually be heard, right? So if it's rather that you're doing this and that doesn't work for me, me versus you kind of dynamic, people shut down, you know, the, the shields come up and, and you trigger a lot of defensiveness, I, in my experience. Whereas if in actual fact, you say, we've, we've got something going on here that isn't working for all of us. So if it's the we, the us, the our, instead of the me versus you or the us versus them, then it stays relatively drama free. And actually, you can connect and collaborate in a way that allows exciting new ideas and solutions to emerge you know you used a very interesting word there Joan uh, disruptive okay and the word disruptive often has really quite negative connotations doesn't it but actually it is also disruption is of course the, the the basis of all innovation right? We have to challenge and disrupt if we want to grow, to learn, if we're our our organization to innovate, um, to add even more value for our customers and stakeholders. And um, that involves, in fact, requires 
some degree of disruption. I think it's about having the social skills, the empathy, um, the ability to do that perspective taking we talked about in, in relation to Rishi Sunak at the start of the call. All of that allows us to test, to challenge and disrupt in a way that is healthy and uh, uplifting and inclusive rather than there being a big drama fest that we all then have to recover from and get past. Completely, completely a drama fest. I like that. It's a drama fest. Yeah. It's a, I'm just thinking about a massive field, lots of, lots of uh, thespians <laughs> in a field intent. <laughs> You see, that's the kind of drama fest I would totally vote for. But, you know, just the day-to-day drama, um, which in organisations, you know, quite often a lot of that is because people are bored or frustrated. They feel like they haven't got the level of control or autonomy over their work or their lives. They're not respected. They're not feeling respected and so on. And so not necessarily knowingly and consciously, but certainly unconsciously, then it's quite possible that we can create drama and disruption just to just to kind of feel alive, you know, for a bit of variety. And um, and of course, it, there's always a backlash on that. Um, but quite often, as I say, it's not done knowingly or consciously. It, it's it's done to to just have some energy in the system. Um, and mm. that's why in organisations and for leaders, it's so important that we give people healthy outlets to express themselves, to have that autonomy over their work, to contribute suggestions, to challenge the status quo and, and so on, because then it gets channeling, uh, channeled in a way that is a win-win, that does benefit the organisation as well as the individual. I like that. It, it challenging status quo. And I think often that that's the power of perspective, isn't it? Because we all we all perceive things subtly differently. I, I, the example I always use is we go into a polling booth with a little stubby pencil and a little sheet of paper across it with boxes on it. And we all have to tick a box when we draw the curtain behind us. And uh, we don't all tick the same box. Mm-hmm. The reason we don't tick the same box is we all have a different perspective on who the best candidate is. That's right. And the, whole, the reasons we believe that are often diverse and different based on our lived experience. So it's really, really important that we, 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 we recognise that not everybody's going to agree with us or we're not going to agree with everybody else. It's how we challenge that. And I, I picked up on the fact that you were in the nuclear industry, you're an engineer, chemist. Um, and I've, I've always felt, you know, I always talk about the fact that science as a discipline, as a profession, is about trying to disprove or challenge and test. Take a theory, pull it apart. Take a theory, pull it apart. Try and break it, try and try and exceed it, try and better it, try and find another perspective. I think we do that in some of these big disciplines, engineering, and everything, that we're testing things out all the time for a better way, a more efficient way, a cheaper way, more fuel efficient, probably in today's language. Mm. But uh, we don't often do that when we're having conversations with each other, do we? We we want to be right. Our confirmation bias, our, our sunk cost bias, all these things kick in. We want to be right. Absolutely, 100%. And I think what's really interesting about that is that when when in science, te- we tend to think about science, or many of us tend to think about science as being a body of knowledge. And it's got these subcategories, you know, physics and chemistry and so on. And, and, and it's the body of knowledge, but it's actually 
it's a scientific approach it's a methodology it's a it's a way of thinking and it has challenge it has doubt skepticism a whole host of interesting things actually baked in that if you apply it to um, more broadly to some of the challenges that we face in our in our work and in our world um, can be incredibly useful you know so um, if if somebody says to you and oh gosh probably shouldn't even raise this subject but a couple of years ago when something kicked off in a big way uh, globally um you know this of course turned into a very heated debate um with all kinds of different perspectives and if you believed one thing you were a sheep <laughs> if you believed something else you were in a cult and and you know that's the other thing that happens here joanne i think is that we we label each other um in ways that are inherently hurtful um and and then we expect people to agree with us and and <laughs> quite frankly good luck with that one um i i'm a, a huge fan of uh, something you're probably very familiar with the nonviolent communication and um this this idea that we can have really difficult conversations we can disagree agreeably because you don't have to agree with what somebody's saying but you do have to understand it and in my view if you want to progress in any kind of uh, difficult conversation if you want to resolve conflict or whatever it is that one of the absolute foundational sort of principles of that is you have to afford people their dignity Mm. you have to let them be right and until you've really, really understood. And then actually, it's far more powerful quite often to come in with questions than it is to come in with your own answers. You know, because quite often, if some if you have a perspective that is different, if you can see something that you believe may well be a, a bit of a blind spot for another person, um, they won't thank you for pointing that blind spot out. But if you ask questions where they come to that conclusion themselves and they have a bit of an aha moment, then they will call you illuminating or insightful or whatever the word may be. And so there is huge power in having difficult conversations. Difficult conversations don't have to be difficult. They can be very rich and rewarding and nourishing. Yeah, and that's that's all about as you say, questioning a perspective, not an outcome or an opinion. Because once you get to the outcome or the opinion, you're arguing often polarised views if you don't agree. And people are very, people tend to be entrenched because they've got, they've got investment into their view. Either they've been had that view for a long time, their, their tribe, the people they hang out with agree with them. And there's kind of, it's a mantra in their life. So to get someone to change their view is really, really tricky. If I can understand your perspective, I can understand the fact that you're black, the fact that you're brown means that you've been through this challenge in your life. You've had this upbringing, this cultural awareness that you've, you've developed that is different to my white British view of the world. Mm. Then I, I, I may, I may not understand the output or the, or the decision, but I can understand your view is different to mine because, and by having these conversations, you say, that's interesting. Tell me why you think that, or, or, or what in your life has give, given you that perspective, or what, why did you think that, that would work better than this way? And then allowing people to explore. Exactly, and and when you do that, 
a number of really interesting things happen. Um, firstly, you have then more information and you may well find <laughs> at some point in that conversation that the thing that you wanted to, <laughs> shall we say, educate the other person around from your own perspective, that in actual fact, you were the one with the blind spot. And by being willing to be open-minded, open-hearted and, and receptive yourself to make sure that you're as well-informed as possible before you offer anything in return, then you've got, as I always like to say to my uh, most of my clients are still technical professionals and their leaders. That's my kind of main main uh, circles that I move in. And I so I'll use words like data. I'll say if you the more questions you ask, ask the more data you have from which to progress the conversation. You know, and that's certainly true. But the other thing that happens when you're willing to ask questions to stay open minded and open hearted is that as human beings we are we are reciprocal by nature. And most people are far more ready and willing and able to listen and listen really well when they themselves feel heard. So you create the conditions within where that reciprocity can happen. You create the conditions where once somebody is, is, has shared as fully as possible, um, that they are then ready to listen to you, and that's when a very authentic, genuine exchange can happen, which can be incredibly uh, exciting and rich and and wonderful for for everybody who's involved. I mean, you and I, Joanne, we just saw an incredible example of that at the conference we were in at a, a, just a few weeks ago with Joe Berry, who was uh, one of the keynote speakers there, whose father died, uh, who was an MP, for, her father died in the Brighton bombing years ago. And she was sharing from the stage her experience, her own extraordinary journey for um, coming into what is now the most incredible relationship with the main man who was responsible for orchestrating what happened. And they now travel the world together, brokering peace. Now, that might be an extreme example, but I think sometimes the extreme examples can show us what is possible on a, a smaller scale for all of us if we are willing to lean in with curiosity and respect and afford people their dignity and ask questions and create the sense of safety that is necessary for authentic sharing to happen. Yeah, Um I often say that you can't be right and happy all the time. Sometimes mm. if you're trying to create a positive resolution, you don't need to be right. and The other person doesn't need to be right. Sometimes the middle ground and often compromise is where nobody wins. But I'd like to think good compromise is where you both feel that your respect, your, you, your dignity is being maintained and the, the bigger the bigger picture is worth it for the compromise. And I, I think we were talking about there, certainly with, with Joe Berry, I think what she was saying was basically she could have carried this anger, she could have carried this venom inside her all her life, she could have she could have carried on promoting it. But what she by doing that, she would have actually been demonising the people who had different views and perspectives than her in the same way they were demonising her. So that cycle of hate 
that cycle mm. of demonization has to be broken by having conversations and living on the edge, either right, left, top or bottom, you somehow have to shuffle towards that middle ground where there are compromises and some of them are tough. You know, people on both sides died. People both both sides lost loved ones. I mean, we look at we look at apartheid, we look at South Africa, we look at Nelson Mandela, mm. we look at all those kind of things. Northern Ireland conflict, we see all these big conflicts. You think, well, how can we get to a point where we can just sit down, have these conversations, and we don't need to be right. We just need to move on from this in a way that we can all live with it. And sometimes we need to put a stake in the ground and say, well, what happened before this date has happened? What happens after this date, we can decide what that is. And I think mm. that was what the power of the Joe's message, and I, I found that really incredible. Definitely. And if I could just add something to that, Joanne, I think that as well, you use the word compromise there. And I agree with you that that is sometimes absolutely necessary. But I think that what we saw in that situation and and many of the others that you mentioned, like the peace and reconciliation process in South Africa, for example, is what we see there is people going beyond compromise into what I would call optimize, which, which is it's a higher level of resolution. It's a deeper level of resolution. So I think that um, when you have to set aside, at least temporarily, your preconceived ideas of truth, what you actually have the opportunity to discover is the deeper level of truth where you can agree. So if you take something like the situation in uh, in Ireland, for example, the Good Friday Agreement w- was brokered by Senator Mitchell and others on, on the understanding that ev- there were certain things that everybody wanted. Everybody wanted to to stop losing sons and brothers and, and, and so you know there were so many things that everybody wanted and it was on the basis of reaching the the things that were true for everybody at that deeply foundational level that that those individuals were able to build back up to something and reach an agreement after literally centuries of bloodshed and, and discord. So I think uh, for the rest of us mere mortals <laughs> You know, the kinds of challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis, some of which are very real and very painful, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that if it's possible at that level, then it's it's possible in the world, it's possible for us too. And so I think it's this idea of going beyond compromise. You know, com- compromise sometimes can be uh, everybody walks away unhappy. Right? Everybody walks away with half of what they wanted and unhappy and that's not the kind of compromise that I'm a fan of Mm. but if what you're compromising around is your fixed idea of what needs to happen for me to be in agreement with you I need x you need y I could never accept that you end up with that dialogue of the deaf uh, where there's all kinds of talking and not an awful lot of listening happening then um that that's that's toxic. It's it's not um, ever going to get to a point where uh, the best you can hope for in that situation is everybody gets exhausted and agrees to to call it a day. Whereas if you're willing to let go of the form that the solution takes, if you say there are certain criteria that I have that must be honoured, that must be met, these are my must-have criteria. And if what you want and what you're proposing isn't acceptable to me, 
and what I'm proposing is unacceptable to you, then we need to find that, you know, the, the, the third way, as it's called in negotiation. We have to find a new way that meets all our criteria. And quite often in business, people say, oh, we haven't got time for that, right? But it's actually truer to say you haven't got time not to because it is a huge drain on time and energy and money and other resources when conflict bubbles unresolved. Hmm. It's, it's one of the traits of uh, transformational leadership, isn't it, where what we're doing is we're painting a picture and creating a vision of of, of, of great, of, of fantastic, or, or where we want to take things and get people to, to, to meet that picture rather than focusing on necessarily where we are today it's where we want to be tomorrow and then trying to create that shared vision about what we all want and i think as you're saying that it's not compromise it's 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 focusing wholeheartedly on the things that bind us together not things that tear us apart and and i think the example you used was we want to stop losing our loved ones we want stability we want economic growth we want we want to feel that our lives can move on we want to unpause our country for again and, and move forward so I, I guess those things are really really powerful and then you That's avoid it. having the discussions about what yeah. you don't want and all the negative and the the conflict i statements and I, I i'm gonna i'm gonna use an example in my own life my marriage and mm. when we've been through difficult times we focused on the horizon what do we want when we're 80 what do we want when we're 70 and being happy, being together, enjoying each other's company is what we can agree we do want. Then we can quite easily say, okay, we don't need to keep discussing or, or on this particular point because it doesn't get us to our goal. And our goal is being together forever and being happy. So we can then pause that conversation and say, we're not giving up. We're not brushing under the carpet. We're just saying that conversation doesn't get us to where we want to be. And we found that works for us. Absolutely. And I think there's something very powerful in what you shared there about that is extremely useful in business as well as in our personal lives. And and that is that sometimes if you can create that vision for what success really will look like and sound like and feel like when we get there. Um, And that's why I'm not a huge fan of vision statements in business because they tend to gather dust in a drawer somewhere um, or or be on the wall, but completely ignored. Um, But I am a huge fan of shared vision, what I would call dream destination. You know, if we were to allow ourselves to really want what we really want, what would that look like and sound like and feel like? And quite often when individuals and teams tap into that authentic vision, it's so extraordinary, it's so beautiful that it's actually beyond words, but everybody knows what it is. Now, if you can tune yourself to that, if you can tap into that, then the strategy comes from reverse engineering that. If that's where we want to be in five years time, where would where might we be in three years time? Where might we be two years, a year from now and so on? And then we can plan in more detail for the short term. And the other aspect of that as well is that what that does is it embraces the uncertainties of life. So right now uh, it, it, we are facing a, 
an unprecedented level of change and turmoil economically, you know, the aftermath of the the COVID situation, which is clearly not yet over, as we both know, Um, you know, all of this uncertainty, um, you know, what's uh, the jargon being in the VUCA world, the volatile uncertain, you know, complex, ambiguous. Um, And that is only accelerating and amplifying um, all of the time. So some of our old traditional approaches to to planning and um, uh, moving forward individually and as businesses just won't cut it. Um, but thinking about it in terms of how can we think at least about the sort of um, the, the magical milestones that we want to rendezvous with. We might not know how we're going to get there. We might not know what we're going to encounter along the way. We might not know what the roadblocks and obstacles are going to be, but we do know that we will encounter obstacles and we do know that we will encounter roadblocks and we do know that there will we will have to reroute uh, every now and again and so on. So we can take certainty from our process even when we can't take certainty from our actual plans, you know, the, the sort of the action plans with lots of I's dotted and T's crossed. And I think this is one of the profound opportunities of leadership really is to when people around you are uncertain and afraid and actually you as the leader don't have the answers that they would love you to have for them, is actually what you can offer them is certainty in your process. This is how, this is what we're moving towards. This is how we're going to approach it. You may even be, here are a number of scenarios that we think are likely, we can't know at this stage which scenario is going to play out, but we know it's most likely going to be one of the following two or three, and so on. And you can give a great deal of of certainty and sense of safety uh, and help people to tap into their courage by by being really as clear as possible about what you do and what you don't know and your process for moving forward. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just thinking there because what's going through my head is these sound bites. We're living in uncertain times. We're also living in unprecedented times. And I'm I'm beginning to wonder whether the world has ever had certain times. You know, we've, as a human species, we're in a constant cycle of evolution, change, external factors. So are we living in any more uncertain times than we've ever done? Uh, Well, or we're we just yeah. using an unprecedented amount of, of the word unprecedented. Because, <laughs> well, uh, certainly yeah. it, it has become an overused word. I even, as I approached saying that word a few moments ago, I felt it coming up in my mouth and going, oh, please don't use that word. Oh, I can't think of a better one in time. Here we go. Um, but what I would say to you is, yes, of course, you know, as the old saying goes, change is the only constant. Um, but What I think is different about the experience that we're having collectively now, and this was happening pre-COVID, is the impact of technology and working practices and so on mean that the, the pace of change has definitely changed. And, you know, even I was having a conversation as part of a briefing for a a talent development program I'm involved with now, and we're just in the setup phase and uh, the HR leader who I was uh, speaking with made what was just a a statement of the profoundly obvious, but, you know, one of those like things, the penny just hadn't dropped for me. And she said, um, 
some of the the roles that this group you're going to be working with, that the roles that they will be fulfilling for us five years from now might not exist right now, right? Probably most of the roles, uh, certainly that they'll be uh, delivering for us as a business 10 years from now, don't exist right now. How do you plan for that? Okay, so, but you, what you can do is, as we were just saying, is you can plan for the process. You can you can embrace the uncertainty as actually opportunity, right? So instead of what most of us were taught to do, and particularly people who, you know, my age, school was decades ago for me, um, progress was all about um, controlling the variables. It was all about um, making, you know, planning ahead. Um, it was it was relatively rigid. Uh, predicting control was, was pretty much what I was trained for, and, and many people who I think who went through school at the same time as me. Um, and predict and control just won't cut it these days. How can you predict and control what can't be predicted or controlled? But what you can do is look at the fundamental life skills and business skills that set somebody up for success in that ever-changing environment, um, re- you know, um, foresight, intu- trusting your intuition, um, you're being able to flex being uh, opportunistic in the best sense of the word, right? And capitalizing on opportunity when you spot it, having a healthy risk appetite, those kinds of things and embracing all of that uncertainty because whilst we have perhaps been trained to think of uncertainty as being a threat, it's also the basis of all opportunity. Um, Anything that is not yet decided is of course filled with possibility, and I, th- I don't think many of us have been uh, encouraged to embrace the upside of uncertainty, um, to to scan the horizon for opportunity that's coming because everything's in a state of flux, not in spite of the fact that everything is in a state of flux. And what you're saying there puts responsibility onto our leaders to ensure the culture of organisations is such that those attributes can flourish, flourish and thrive. We need psychological safety. We need the ability to take risks. We need the ability to learn from our mistakes. We need the ability to be encouraged, that sort of thing. Um, too often, you say, we're in a command and control type of environment. We're expected to have certainty. But we, as you say, we want people to flex. We want people to be resilient we want people we want to understand people's mental health uh what what triggers they will have what what support we can put into workplaces to encourage people to be you know, artisans we, we don't want people to be autonomous anymore we want them to be artisans to be self-creative um a bit like the matthew sire black box thinking we want people to be empowered at the point of inception or delivery or inspiration to better come up with ideas without having to refer back up the chain all the time so that's the agile modern world. You say completely, I, I completely agree. By the year 2030, it was 80% of the roles that will exist haven't yet been created or even ideated. You know. Yeah, Uber, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, um, uh, Facebook, uh, all these technologies, Amazon, they've, they've been born and created really in the last 10 years. Yes. And people's businesses, people's lives are now ruled and governed by them. And we'd never predicted that. To be a a social media specialist wasn't a role five, six years ago. Exactly. Um, 
And you, you mentioned it, as you quite rightly say, it does put a great deal of responsibility on, on our leaders. And you just very eloquently said what, what we now need from our leaders. Um, and I think it's it's really important to acknowledge that for many very well-established leaders, this is deeply uncomfortable, it's deeply unsettling, because what they were originally recognized and rewarded for and what got them where they are right now is the opposite of what of many aspects of what you've just described. Okay. And so it is also about that having, you know, what Carol Dweck would call a growth mindset throughout your career, not this idea that you go through a training program and then some kind of professional fast track and and then you manage, then you lead, etc. And it's all um it's all predicated on the basis that you that there is a right way of doing things and and all of that kind of thing. And instead see it as um as I like to say, I want to have my L plates, my learner plates firmly fixed front and back for the rest of my life. And I really sincerely mean that. Um, but that's uh, that's something that I've cultivated. It's something that I've learned to do. It's something that I've embraced and experienced for myself, the upside of being willing to lean into uncertainty and to lean in to the discomfort and the not knowing. But for a lot of our very established leaders, that's not what they've been recognized and rewarded for. And, uh, you know, I'm happy that there are, there are safe spaces for those individuals as well. Quite often within their own organization, it can be, as the saying goes, lonely at the top. And it can. That's why executive coaching is, is um, you know, such a well-established resource, because we all need that safe space within which to sanity check our thinking and to, to test our ideas and so on. And then, of course, there are um, chief executive groups and and so on, uh, Vistage and others that um, that help to create that that uh, supportive challenge um, where very senior leaders can can grow and learn. And I think it's that learning culture, that growth mindset, being uh, not only held individually but encouraged and embedded throughout an organisation that's really going to build the kind of genuine resilience. Um, that we need it, resilience is really resilience is another one of those like overused words over the last couple of years of course for all kinds of reasons but it's quite often used in a way that makes me personally quite uncomfortable because it seems to suggest that we all need to toughen up and brace ourselves against the world and that being resilient is somehow getting better at doing that better braced tougher or whatever and when we do that when we toughen up in the name of resiliency we sacrifice unwittingly often sacrifice some of the best of ourselves because when you don't let anything in you also don't let a lot of the good stuff out you lose your nuance you lose your sensitivity you lose perspective in many many ways and I think that there is a there is a a a different approach to resilience which is one I would much rather advocate for which is really recognizing and rooting yourself very firmly in your authentic strengths and what you are uniquely positioned to bring to the business to your team to your loved ones and so on because that gives you a um the kind of resilience, tenacity, um, you know, stick with it nurse that will see you through all kinds of situations. Because when you are 
deeply connected to who you really are and you have made a commitment to bring that to the world to the best of your ability you do become an unstoppable force of nature and whilst Mm. there is uh there's a limit to that of course and we do need to still be very mindful of our our well-being people who like you and I who have a very strong sense of purpose in our work are not immune to burnout (laughs) okay we have to perhaps remember that sometimes um but certainly feeling like you are part of something that's bigger than you that you're contributing to something that matters that it matters that it's you that's there and not a another similarly qualified person this is the stuff of life this is what allows us to feel like the right person in the right place at the right time and that's the kind of resilience that I personally love to advocate for yeah and I like I like the phrase I can't remember if it's the 80s or 90s we called it bounce back ability Yes. And that, that for me, it, it doesn't imply that you're, you're rigid like a stake in the ground and you're unbendable or like a concrete structure. It's mm-hmm. recognising that sometimes, like a tree, like a plant, you need to adapt to the environment, bend in the wind. By bending, by flexing, by being reactive to the environment, you don't snap, you don't break. You're, you design, right. you're building that, that bounce-back ability. Or, or the other way I like to look at it is, uh, do you remember those toys? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. <laughs> exactly. A, bo- a boxer will recoil and absorb the punch, not stand there and soak the punch up without recoiling. So our resilience has to be based on um, a dynamic foundation where we can adapt to the surroundings, not trying to be rigid. Resilience is not about rigidity. It's about no, being adaptable I- and... But having that sense of, I can get back up again. I can keep doing this. And I think exactly. that's men- mental resilience and the physical resilience. We've got to blend and both then, sides and emotional. Absolutely. And I, and I, I'm so happy that we're actually speaking about this, John, because I don't think this is something that is talked about often enough. And and the the real discourse, even on LinkedIn and other places where you and I enjoy hanging out, um, is is often in that sort of like, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going and all of that kind of mindset. And whilst there's a place for that, I think it's overplayed. And and I also think it's sometimes used by some organisations as an excuse to not put the appropriate guardrails in, in place to protect their staff. You know, it's, it's like uh, expecting people to wear their resilience as some kind of badge of honour, which then means it's not psychologically safe for them to acknowledge when they are overwhelmed or struggling. They can't acknowledge when they've made a mistake or had some kind of near miss and it stores up all kinds of problems. And when I work with very senior leaders, one of the things that I hear over and over again, you know, for like over 20 years, I've been doing what I'm doing these days, Joanna, what I hear over and over again is one of the most challenging things, the more seen you go, is that you don't hear the truth anywhere near often enough that that, that what's really going on in the organisation is sanitised sanitized at each level of the organization and therefore the message is so distorted or diluted by the time it reaches the most senior leaders that actually they then don't have the data they need to make intelligent decisions on behalf of the organization and so um it's it's what we were saying earlier about 
the importance of psychological safety, creating a space where people can offer their ideas, can acknowledge when something isn't working, can speak to their struggles and ask for help uh, in a way that may actually then play out as helpful for others. That is the kind of organisational resiliency that means that we can get through the toughest of times. Mm. I just think as well as what you're saying there about, you know, there's often this filtering out of, of what's going on upwards and each layer without so filter. I think we also have to recognise that that can happen in reverse where leaders mm. try and summarise or optimise or, or we can't tell our people this because they'll get worried or concerned. So there's kind of this um, Chinese whispers in both directions or Chinese walls and we, we have to kind of get leaders more used to well, using their t- the power of the diversity of their team with accurate information and data, as we talked about, data is important. Mm. If I if I tell 10 people my problem with all of the things that are in my head, my parameters, I've got 10 people solving that problem. But if I filter my problem down to one solution or one thought, all I can have is 10 people working on my view, not the view that's bigger than me. So we have to get used to being able to use that the power of our networks that may be, we may need to have humility, we may need to have vulnerability, we may need to say, as a leader, I don't know, I need help. I need you as my team to, to, to solve this with me. Here's all, my, right. here's all my facts, here's all my data, and none of my opinions, because we've got to make sure we have none of my opinions come with those. Otherwise, all we do is we we, we, we get the group thing, we get that sort of, uh, all the biases kicking again. So that's the challenge, I think. If we can get that, the proper two-way, trust, open communications, vulnerability in both directions, psychological safety so we can both learn, we can both explore all these things. There's no stupid answer. There's just ideas we're exploring. That's where organisations who are doing this kind of agile thinking are far more able to, as you you said earlier, able to respond to the demands of 2030 to 2035. Definitely. And that's that's where masterminding and mentoring can also come in. Because um, if you're in an organization, if somebody's listening to this right now and they're thinking, oh my goodness, we've definitely not got that where I'm working. Um, There's there's really not that sense of trust and psychological safety. Does that mean I need to leave? No. What it means is that in the short to medium term, you need to find that or create that for yourself elsewhere. Right, So that you have got that um, opportunity to share in a safe environment where you'll be celebrated for your willingness to acknowledge that you haven't got all of the answers and actually, you know, uh, tap into the hive mind and, and all of that good stuff. And that might be a group as in group masterminding, or it might be working with a mentor. And the more senior you go, I think the more useful it can be if your mentor is not in your own organization. But even at relatively junior levels, relatively early in your career, I think one of the powerful things, people people quite often will ask me for uh, my recommended or suggested criteria for finding a mentor or approaching a mentor. And there's quite a few things on that list, but uh, the number one for me is it can't be somebody who's in your line management, not unless there is incredible skill and hat management being done by that, by that, by that senior individual, because they, it's very, very uh, difficult for them to not have at least some kind of vested interest in the choices that you're going to make going forward. So um, it's if even if your line manager is absolutely wonderful and supports your growth and your career as well as your uh, productive contribution, 
I still advocate wholeheartedly for people working with a mentor. And it may be more than one mentor for different aspects of where they're looking to grow, learn and progress. And that's exactly the reason why you should never teach a family member to learn to drive. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Definitely. I delegated that one to somebody with dual controls. (laughs) He-man dual controls, I think they put on the back of the car, don't they? Um, Yeah, completely. And because it's it's not always, it can be hard to take instruction or guidance from from people. It's even harder to take uh, constructive feedback from someone who's close to you. The closer you are, the harder it is because there's, because you end up with emotion. And I think when you were talking earlier about the this vastly more connected world, we're not just connected by facts and events, which mm-hmm. we may be wearing this, you know, we were getting video reels in the Second World War of this was what's going on. We, so we understood what was in our events, but we're now getting connected in terms of emotions. Yes. All, of our, all of our social media posts have emotions connected. Every GIF, every emoji, communicates non-verbally an emotion about how we're feeling and that is the the power what we have at the moment we we are more emotionally connected with each other in a positive or negative way which again affects our resilience affects our mental health affects all parts of our being beyond maybe just a physical thing i think that's where we where maybe the 20 yeah the 2022 person has more emotional drains than ever before and i think that's that's what our bodies were never really designed for our brains weren't designed for that mental resilience so i think the emotional connection is 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 good in a way but detached emotional connection is draining absolutely and that's of course we see that on social media as you were saying earlier and uh, how easy it is to end up in an echo chamber um, without even realizing it, because um, the algorithms will show you more of whatever you've been watching and listening to. Um, that's why if you if you just spend your life watching cat videos, guess what? You're going to have a feed full of cat videos. But it's the same with a, with your political views, with your your views on the climate and what's happening for our planet, and so on. And so it's really important to just to have that perspective that says. I am, whenever I come onto one of these platforms, I am not seeing what everybody else is seeing. I'm seeing more of what I've seen before. And that's why we our politics has become so polarized. It's why there is, you know, that kind of similar polarity and, and duality in, in so many other fields where, where which runs counter to what you and I were discussing earlier, where we were saying it's actually when you get the diversity of perspectives around the table with a, a, a we focus, we need to resolve this, we have this challenge, we have this issue, and everybody's perspective is seen as valid and useful, that's when the new solutions emerge. Not The new solutions do not emerge from the dialogue of the deaf. Okay, this has been amazing. We've been yakking away now for over an hour. Um, wow. <laughs> I, I, I know that I want to keep talking to you, and I'm sure our listeners want to keep talking to you. So how can people get hold of you? Well, my uh, speaking of social media, my I guess my home base on social media is definitely LinkedIn. So if anybody would like to connect with me there, I would absolutely love to hear from your listeners. I'm on there as Kate Trafford. Uh, FPSA and um, 
and that's where I love to share. Uh, my, also, they could, if they so choose, take a little look at my recently published book, which is called Get Their Love Here. And it's really all about how to set that vision for your future, that authentic vision that is true to who you really are and not the ideas of success um, in life and career that you were trained for and very much in, in keeping with um, many of the subjects we've touched on today is, is like how can you achieve big things and have a hell of a good time along the way um, so if people would be interested in that um, then it's get their love here and that's available on Amazon and in all good bookstores in all good bookstores ah Pop down to Waterstones or W.H. Smith to find it on the Absolutely. shelf. Absolutely. Is it yeah. one of the best? Well, by, by order, uh, they'd have to order in if it was for, for those stores, but online bookstores, it is very well represented. And as I say, you can order it in there. If you want a signed copy, you can order it directly from me, of course. That's Ooh. katetrafford.com. katetrafford.com. Excellent. I can feel a. Uh, a Christmas present coming up for uh, a loved one coming up, and uh, no doubt Wonderful. I'll share it. I'll share it with them as well. Fantastic, lovely, Kate, amazing. Thank you, thank you so much. Inspirational as always. Thank um, you. So, wow, a huge thank you to you, the listener, uh, the listeners, hopefully, for tuning in, getting this far. I really appreciate it. Your support means so much to me. Uh, please do subscribe if you're not already to keep updated on the future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please tell your friends and colleagues, share the love. I have a number of other exciting guests. I mean, they can't be more exciting, I'm sure, but I, who, who knows? Who knows? You have to tune in to find out. They're lined up for over the next few weeks and months to give you even more inspiration. Of course, if you'd like to be a guest yourself, if you listen to this, you think I could do that, then please do drop me a line. And of course, any other feedback, suggestions, how we can improve. If you think we can improve, I'd love to hear it. Just email me, joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. And finally, it's my pleasure to say my name is Joanne Lockwood, and I have been your host for this podcast today. Catch you next time. Bye.